Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Said Britain is just a small island that no one pays attention to. A former colony won the right to determine its own destiny. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's normally what we do. Every now and then we go to our foreign correspondent, our man abroad. I am Royfield Brown and of course our man abroad is Tim Marshall. He used to be IRN's Paris correspondent. He's worked for the Beeb, Sky, you name it. He's been there and he's worked for them. Tim, uh, where have you been recently? You've come back from a rather lovely jaunt in Italy. Uh, where were you in Italy? You went somewhere else which wasn't quite as lovely. I was in uh, Mantova, which is in mm-hmm. northern Italy, just below Lake Garda. Fabulous book festival, because I've got a new book out, which happily the Italians have published as well. And so they invited me over to talk about it. I had a terrific weekend. Lovely weather, lovely food, everything great. And then I went to Lithuania, which is a perfectly nice place. But mm-hmm. the, the joie de vivre of Italy, they're a little bit more staid in Lithuania. Mm. Very nice. Uh, nice time. Oh, oh, where in Lithuania were you? Vilnius? Vilnius, Kanaus, yeah, Vilnius. Kla- oh. Vilnius and then just outside oh. Vilnius. Was that part of the book tour as well? It's complicated, but yes. Um, but the one thing I came away with, because I'm such a party animal, I talk geopolitics wherever I go, was uh, <laughs> they are genuinely anxious about Russia, uh, much more so than, say, Western Europeans. But I guess you look at a map to, uh, and then read a bit of history to find out why. Mm. Absolutely, and they've got that weird little bit of Kilaningrad there, mm-hmm. haven't they? That little Russian just, enclave. Just below Lithuania. Yeah. Uh, is yeah? Is this the Kaliningrad corridor? It's only a few miles wide, but it's it's Russian territory controlled by Russia uh, into the city of Kaliningrad. And I'm not saying they're about to do it, but theoretically, at any moment, the Russians could cut that corridor. At which point, the three Baltic states, which are NATO countries, are cut off from the rest of uh, the continent. And that's one of the things that makes them anxious. Mm. Other thing, just to completely uh, help pimp you sell all your books, sir, mm. 
those flags of those uh, Baltic states. No idea. Both, you know, well, you've got Latvia, which is kind of purple and, and white and purple again, and you don't see a lot of purple on flags. You just don't. Qatar. Qatar's flag is purple. Um, that is true. Being that it was a very royal colour because you could only... It was a very difficult colour to get hold of from some seashell mm. creatures. And so the ability to do it proved that, you know, you knew what you were doing. And then you've got Lithuania's flag, which to me doesn't say Lithuania. It doesn't say Baltics. It doesn't say it's a little bit cold. It says warm. It almost says Africa. You know, it's greens and yellows and reds. It, it is unusual. It is not in the family um, of European flags and the tricolours. Um, yeah, you know, they're, they're up there and out there on their own. Um, it, it is a different place. Well, I'll tell you one country which is definitely up there and out there and on its own. It's Venezuela. Now, its economy, Tim, is in freefall and there is an exodus of kind of biblical proportions. Venezuela is embarking this week on a major economic overhaul, the biggest in the five years that Nicolas Maduro has been president of the country. Why? Well, put simply, because of hyperinflation. Inflation has been a problem in Venezuela for years, but it's really taken off since the end of last year. Since then, prices have been almost doubling every month for the past nine months. The annual inflation rate is now running at around 80,000%. By some measures, that's the highest in Latin American history. And economists in Caracas expect it to get worse. They say it could reach 300,000, 400,000% this year. So what's the government doing about it? Well, Nicolas Maduro has announced a series of drastic measures. The first introduced this week is to lop five zeros off the currency, the Bolivar. So a whole load of new banknotes have been issued. Uh, the biggest of those banknotes is the 500 Bolivar note. That will be worth 50 million old Bolivars. That's still only around $8. Now, this should make things slightly easier for Venezuelans in practical terms. They won't have to carry big bags of cash around with them in the way that they have in the past. But as economists have pointed out, lopping five zeros off the currency won't actually halt hyperinflation. And just to confuse matters, the new notes and the old notes will actually run in parallel for a while until the old notes are finally phased out. Mr. Maduro says that the new Bolivar will be pegged to the Petro, a state-run cryptocurrency which he launched earlier this year. He says there will be 3,600 new Bolivars to the Petro, and the Petro will be worth $60. Now, if you do the maths, that works out as a currency devaluation of 95 or 96%. Many economists say this is really just smoke and mirrors because the Petro doesn't really exist in any recognized form. It isn't traded on any recognized platform. The government can issue it at will. As one analyst said last week, Mr. Maduro has chosen to peg the new Bolivar to the Petro, but he might as well have chosen to peg it to unicorns. It's that fanciful. How is President Nicolas Maduro and his government still managing to remain in power if, since 2014, 2.3 million Venezuelan citizens have left? In shorthand, guns, they help. But it's more complicated than just guns because... The army has the guns, and if they switch sides, then the other side has the guns. So that, you know, but that is the bottom line, force. Secondly, he does retain uh, a core vote for people who believe that they are better off than they were in 1999 when the Bolivarian Revolution and Chavez took hold. Another one is that when the party grips the levers of power, the intelligence services, 
big business, uh, most of the media, uh, the army and the police, um, you can smash the demonstrations off the street and dampen down up to a point for a certain period of time uh, the ambitions of people to replace you. And, and that's what's going on at the moment. And so after the democratic demonstrations failed and things really got tough, yet from about 2014, that's when the exodus began. But it's really gathered pace uh, this year. And um, I, I was looking at the inflation uh, rate. It's in the tens of thousands. or It's, it's some, some crazy, crazy figure. The figure, figure I've got here quoted, and this is a, a Venezuelan opposition figure, so take it with a, a slight pinch of salt, but 83,000% in July. Okay, well, let's halve it. Let's halve it, just, you know, just because, yes, it's the opposition figure, so we'll halve it. It's <laughs> unlike anything most of us have ever experienced. And at that rate of inflation, you see prices doubling every 26 okay. days on average. I've experienced this second-hand, but nowhere near as bad as this, in Serbia in mm-hmm. the 90s, when there was hyperinflation. And you would genuinely see people who got paid in cash literally run from their place of work where they got paid to the shops, because they knew if they left it a few hours or till the following morning to go shopping, things would have increased by you know X amount. Well, times that by 40,000 or whatever the, the figure is, and, of course, it's more than just the hyperinflation. It's what goes with that, what also goes with a catastrophic mismanagement of the economy, which they say is exacerbated, the government says is exacerbated by American sanctions. I'm less sure you can explain what's going on there uh, by government sanctions. So let's go back to Serbia a second. Was that after Milosevic? No, it was, it was um, during Milosevic. It was one of the... It's one of the many reasons that he was eventually overthrown. I mean, one of my personal theories is that one of the main reasons he was overthrown, he was a loser. He lost them three wars. Uh, mm. You know, I don't think it was so much for many people that he went to war, although a lot of people did oppose it. It was that he lost them. And then if you add on to that an economic um, mishaps, left, right and center, and, and then the repression, you eventually get enough people that think we've had enough of this. Now, they were aided by outside forces, including the British and the Americans, but you know it wasn't the outside world that overthrew uh, Milosevic. It was the Serbs. And if Maduro goes, it will not be the CIA plot that gets rid of him. It will be the Venezuelan people. By the way, the last picture I saw of Maduro was of him eating some very, very nice-looking pieces of huge pieces of steak in Dubai, uh, it's not gone down very well on social media. It's a video. He's in Dubai, I assume, trying to get some money out of the uh, UAE to, to prop himself up. And uh, he really shouldn't be allowing himself to eat steak when hundreds of thousands of people are, are looking at empty shelves in the supermarkets and power cuts. Mm. And uh, one of the reports that I read was says that the average Venezuelan only has one meal a day now. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's, it's not catastrophic. I mean, the numbers are up there. With Syria, I mean, obviously the death toll is just just not comparable. But the the economic suffering, it's, again, for most of us, inconceivable. Uh, Hospitals are completely run down. You go to the shop, there's no food in there. So you go along to the chemist, there's no medicines. You you can't treat your children for various things, obviously, 
go wrong. It's just every aspect of life has been massively downgraded. Well, I do blame the Chavez revolution with its mismanagement of the economy following on President Maduro's mismanagement. I fully accept Chavez did do some redistribution of wealth. I think the education levels of the investment went up, housing, etc., etc. But he simply bought them. He didn't do anything to diversify the economy. Uh, more than 90% of the economy is based on oil. It's a fabulously wealthy oil country, and yet they, they just started to spend, spend, spend. When the price went down, they've got nothing else to sell because they don't make anything. So if you're not getting enough money from your oil sales and you don't make anything else, what do you think is going to happen? And it was as if they were riding this economic wave of high, high oil prices but not doing anything in case a rainy day came along. So, Tim, let me just understand something, because, yes, some 95% of the government's revenue comes from oil exports, and we've had 19 years of this socialist government being in power, first under Chavez, now Maduro. So why hasn't the government spent its time after redistributing wealth and building schools, uh, equipping hospitals, why hasn't it spent its time diversifying the economy? They're not very serious economic politicians. They are populists, um, and they have shored up their base, which was the working class, because they have improved. Before they ruined everyone's lives, they did improve some people's lives. But they just perhaps they just thought that the oil prices would go on forever at that level, and they just didn't plan. And perhaps they also felt we, we need to keep spending the more we spend. But they, they've done all sorts of stupid things as well. Now, price controls is a good example. Price controls, I understand sometimes, you know, an, a, a, an economy needs sometimes to manage the prices. But their socialist policies meant that they were going to cap prices for certain goods. They wanted some of the few that they did make, or the ones that were imported. At which point, a lot of the big importers said, well, it's not worth it because... You know, I'm not making enough of a profit. Now, if you hate capitalists, do you think they're capitalist pigs who are hurting people? Fine. But it's the way of the world. And you should be smart enough as an economist to know that that will happen if you put price controls on. Uh, and it did happen. So the very low manufacturing base they had, a lot of them said, well, I'm not going to bother manufacturing anything. And the importer said, I'm not going to bother importing anything. So things started to run out very quickly. I mean, it's not quite as bad as the... the um, what the Soviets did in Ukraine, where they collectivized all the farms in the 1930s, and the farmers simply said, well, I'm not going to, you know, you're going to pretend to pay me, and I'll pretend to work. And it resulted in famine. If you approach economic policy through political ideology, it usually goes wrong. So explain what the government's doing about this mass exodus and about the hyperinflation. Well, um, this is how odd it all is, one of the things, they're doing a virtual currency. In many ways, actually, this is ahead of its time. Um, a personal belief is that Bitcoin and all the other ones will not succeed in replacing um, national currencies, the dollar, the pound, the euro, the yen, etc., etc. Because I know the theory is that gradually they will replace it because you can then get past the state. But I think what will happen is the state will 
put enough blocks in the way of cryptocurrencies to ensure that their versions of uh, money survive, because the state will always try to get control. And so Venezuela sort of like fast-forwarded to the future. But Venezuela is not the sort of country that can do that, that can come out with a cryptocurrency, because it's simply not strong enough. But anyway, that's one of the things they've done. They've got a cryptocurrency, and you to try to halt the inflation, you anchor uh, the Bolivar to the, to the value of the currency, and so you stop the inflation rising. But that would take, and this is the magic of money, you have to believe in it. If somebody says this piece of paper is worth this amount, you have to believe them. If you don't, you don't want that piece of paper. And I suspect that because it's a virtual currency it's linked to, this will fall on its face in a few weeks. Another one is that the minimum wage has been massively hiked. Again, it sounds fantastic. I mean, I, I personally think we should hire the, make the minimum wage higher in my own country. But they've raised it 34 times. So all the employees, whether you're employing 10 people or 100 people, have suddenly got to uh, very low wages, which is a bad thing. You've suddenly got to times it by 34. And of course, everyone thinks, I can't afford that. So I'll just lay off my workforce. So I don't see how that's going to pay for it. And then they've raised VAT. Uh, well, that just puts, makes things more expensive. And the last one is, uh, and, and this was a more mainstream. They simply said that $100,000 Bolivar note you have is now actually a 1,000 Bolivar note to try to, again, suppress inflation. I don't think that's going to work either. I, th I think it's in the downward spiral now. Okay, so that's the internal economics of Venezuela. What destabilizing effects are these, what, almost 3 million people uh, leaving, actually having on its neighbours, Colombia, Brazil, Ecuador, etc.? Yeah. How is South America coping with that amount of people it's coming across its borders? Badly, um, and that's because of the, the increase in numbers. Colombia's getting the worst of it um and that's if you look at a map you, you see the, the border and also the accessibility of colombia so the majority of people have fled slightly north isn't it into colombia far fewer have gone to brazil but that's again you look at the map and when you look south from venezuela to brazil you're heading straight into the rainforest area you know it's it's nowhere near rio de janeiro for example um, once people get to Colombia, some of them are going on to Ecuador and Peru. And the problem with all these countries is they are not first world industrialized developed countries. They are developing quite well, some of them. But they are struggling to cope with these sort of numbers. I'm afraid there's been a few mini riots on border t in border towns by people saying they're fed up with new foreigners coming here. Peru has now said you must have a passport and a visa to come here. So, of course, if you've charged your way out of Venezuela, made it into Colombia, probably with a passport, are you now queuing up at the Peruvian embassy in Bogota to try to get a visa, which I doubt will be speedily forthcoming? So they're in a really difficult situation. It's getting worse. The South American countries are trying um, and something really interesting happened just this week. The Latin Americans wanted to come together and say, right, but we will all agree no military intervention in Venezuela, no matter what happens. And Colombia said, we're not signing that. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're about to militarily intervene to try and stabilize things, but it does mean that they've reserved the right to. So, put your Nostradamus-like cap on now, get your crystal ball out. How is this all going to play out, do you reckon, Tim? Probably a coup. Uh, at a certain point, when things have got so bad, at that point, often the military, with some backing, possibly even you know CIA involvement, who knows, possibly some senior opposition figures that are in contact with senior military figures, they say, come on, you know, you've got to realise the game is up. That's the most likely, but I think, sadly, it's got some way to dwindle down. You know, they haven't reached rock bottom yet. That's, for me, the most likely scenario. Another one is some sort of an amazing aid package. But given you've got sanctions against them, uh, given that hardly anybody supports Maduro, are you going to have an aid package to a country with a leader you completely disagree with? And at that point, you might say, well, what about North Korea? But uh, North Korea is a different example. You know, you wouldn't be comparing like with like. So that that's another scenario. Uh, another one is that these economic measures actually pay off, and um, somehow they stabilize, and then they say, "Come home, there's jobs now." But of those three scenarios, I still think the first one's the most likely. Okay, so we need to see exactly how Maduro's self-inflicted crisis in Venezuela is going to play out. But there's another crisis on just about the other side of the planet from there. It's the South China Sea. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Roy Phil Brown and with me I have... David Crowther of the History of England. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. 
It gives wind in Churchill sails to say we can continue to fight on. Well, there cannot be many more famous events in English history than 1066. It hurts, (laughs) even now. Because 1066 is important. Yeah. But there's aspects of modern British culture which I think get overlooked. So I'm proposing that this week we do Scar. For me, the English flag has in the past certainly become associated with factionalism and, well, hideous racist and far-right views. And it's turned into a thing of disunity and almost xenophobia. The idea of this show is to decide on what things that make England as she is. The country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Every week, one of us, that is David and I, will pitch an idea to the other to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive. Go and join our shiny new Facebook site where once a month we will post a poll where, should you so desire, you can make your own very suggestions for applications to the I Made England Award. So, without more ado, let's do it. Flying warplanes over the Scarborough Shoal, conducting drills in the South China Sea, joining war games with Russia, and sending militia fleets swarming into waters contested with Japan. Ever since The Hague struck down Beijing's claims to almost the entire South China Sea, China has doubled down on its aggressive strategy, increasing the risk of an inadvertent clash between China and the other giant, America. A new study by Randcorp says that a Sino-US war is a possibility as China flexes its muscles in the disputed waters. Violence could ignite quickly since each side has a strong incentive to pull the trigger first rather than risk losing their planes and ships to precision attacks from the other. Many today think that armed conflict between the world's two largest economies is unthinkable. After all, China and the United States are the world's largest trading partners and closely linked in many ways. But the RAND report notes an increasing confidence among Chinese military strategists that they could conduct a short, sharp and victorious war. So what's the advice? Among others, it says America should expand communications with China. Peaceful settlement of these disputes is absolutely critical, we think, to all of us. Washington's response has been restrained since the International Tribunal ruling. US officials seem to hope that avoiding provocative words and actions will make it easier for Beijing to find a graceful way to comply with the ruling over time. As the RAND report argues, war is more likely to arise if China misjudges America's willingness to defend its East Asian allies, pushing them too far. Rival countries have wrangled over the South China Sea for centuries, uh, but tension has been steadily increased in recent years. Why and what exactly is going on? The The increase in the last decade is due mostly to the rise of Chinese power. Now, for a long time, many decades, they have claimed various parts of the South China Sea, uh, Paracel Islands, for example, which are also claimed by Vietnam and Taiwan. There are other uh, islands, Scarborough, Woody Island, Fiery Cross Reef. Now, you see, that's the old imperial names for them from the European colonies. They're called other things these days. So China and others, Brunei, Philippines, uh, Malaysia, they've all said at some point, this is ours. And what you're supposed to do is go to uh, arbitration and work it out. What China is doing, now it has the technological and economic and military ability, is to go into the South China Sea 
and get onto something like uh, Fiery Cross Reef, pour cement and sand on it, at which point it becomes not a reef but an island. They then use the uh, United Nations Law of the Sea because there's different rules about reefs, rocks, islands, and countries, and how much of the territorial waters surrounding them you control. For example, if, if at high tide a reef is covered by water, nobody can have it. If it's not, then geographically you can work out who does or doesn't own it. But there wasn't this technology to create a large island. So now they've created this island and said that's our sovereign territory. They couldn't do it before. Now they can. And not only can they actually build them with the money and the technology they have, they can also defend them because they're a military power. So the last two years, after the islands were built and they're still being built, by the way, Vietnam does a bit of island building as well. They are now putting runways on them, anti-aircraft batteries, aeroplanes, hardened shelters, troops, houses for them to live in, and they are saying this is part of China. And just to finish the last bit, sorry, very lengthy explanation. If they are part of China, then your sovereign territory includes 12 nautical miles uh, from the shore, at which point if you want to sail through that, you better ask permission from China. If you don't accept its Chinese, Chinese territory, sail through it, see what happens. Why is China doing this? Other than just, you know, China looks bigger on the map and it extends its uh, political yeah. sphere and its military sphere. Why are the Spratleys, the Paracels, etc., why are they potentially so important? Not just for China, but for Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, the Philippines, etc. For everyone except China, it is about fishing rights. Well, no, including China. It's about fishing rights. It's uh, about in case you find some oil. Or some gas, you know, ah, yes, we all agreed that was my territory. Consequently, those are my fish, that's my oil, and that's my gas. So that's, that's everybody's reason. But with China, it goes further. Um, if you look at a map, um, the best way to understand Chinese foreign policy in, in, its, in its region is to have a map that looks outwards from China towards the Pacific. And at that point, you notice a bunch of islands, let's even include Japan in this, and Taiwan. It's called the Nine Line Dash. And they see in their eyes, looking outwards from China into the ocean, a barrier, a string of islands that prevents them from easy access, let's say from between the main island of Japan and Okinawa, which is south of Japan. If you want to go through that, uh, it's not easy if you were in a state of high tension. And that's true of the whole nine-line dash. So what you can do is you can build these islands and say this is our territory. You can then say your navies can't uh, sail through them because it's my sovereign territory. You can then build up your defences so that they really take you seriously, which they are now beginning to. And you also can try to bully the big powers like Japan and, and America so that wavering powers let's say Vietnam, which fears China more than it fears America. They're actually closer to America than they are to China Vietnam. Uh, that's because the Chinese occupied them for a lot longer than the Americans did. Um, and, and you get them to switch sides, and this is a decades-long policy. So for China, this is about geopolitics. For the other countries, it's mostly about, uh, I, I would say, 
economics. But really, get a look, get get a map that shows you the Chinese perspective looking outwards, and you will see a barrier in front of you. They want to break that barrier. Must admit, I didn't realise that um, the Chinese twice have. Uh, grabbed uh, the paracels from Vietnam and actually killed Vietnamese troops. Yeah. I thought this was just uh, just saber rattling. Didn't realise that in 1974 they'd killed 70 Vietnamese troops that were on the paracels, and also in 1988 uh, there was a naval clash uh, where 60 sailors, all Vietnamese, lost their lives. So, what is the US position in all of oh, this, okay. Tim? Just for us to wrap up. The US position is that they police the sea lanes of the world on behalf of the world. You may not want them to, or you may not think they have the right to, but nevertheless, they're the only navy that can pretty much guarantee that the international sea lanes upon which we all uh, count for our trade, they must be open, stay open. And so what the US Navy does is conduct freedom of navigation operations, FONOPs, they're called. They do it all over the world, but they've been intensifying their FONOPs in the South China Sea. Under Obama, they were doing six a year, and I think that's continued under Trump. So they sail sometimes within the 12 nautical miles off these artificial islands, just to make the point that, you know, these are, this is not your sovereign territory. You know, if they want to sail close to China, they, they ring up and say, is it okay? Well, that's fine. That's, that, that's an understood thing. But this is different. You know, this is creating sovereign territory. Three trillion dollars a year? of, of uh, trade passes through the South China Sea, three trillion. If you stop that, the world's in a spot of trouble. The Americans don't want the Chinese to control it, so off we go with the freedom of navigation. The, the Japanese have joined in. Uh, they sent a sub through, and I think a ship through this year. And plucky little Britain, still ruling the waves, last month sent HMS Albion. It's an amphibious warship. There's a bunch of Royal Marines. It went right past the Paracel Island. Um, China got very hot under the collar and said this was an outrage. But of course, big picture, the Brits, Japanese, the Americans and others are all insisting on freedom of navigation. China is going to insist at some point, this is our waters, we've warned you and now we're going to do something about it. But we are years, years away from them actually doing something about it. Just as a last note on this, whilst doing the research for this segment of the show, there's a great YouTube clip of an American plane flying over, I can't remember if it was the Spratlys or the Paracels, but one, one or the other, and Chinese air control contact the plane and say, you're flying over Chinese territory, please turn away. Yeah. And they just continue. Yeah. Five I minutes afterwards. They're quite angry and they start shouting, um, well, this is the thing. They were quite calm with the American plane, and the American plane just kept on flying. Filipino plane, you should have heard the same tra air traffic controller scream and bellow and threaten to shoot them out of the sky. Yeah, well, that, I mean, you know, that, there you have it. That's the relative power of the two. But this is a very delicate balancing act. It happens with the Ch Japanese trawlers, uh, Japanese ships. It happens between American and Chinese ships. There's something called crashback. Been a couple of incidents in the past two years. That's when, well, pretty much you do a, you, put, you slam the brakes on uh, of your warship and it, it rears up. It really does rear up. You know, the, the front end of the ship comes up and the Chinese have been playing chicken with the Americans. And the Americans have chickened out and that's probably a good thing. I, and that's actually the wrong way of terming it. If they didn't crash back, they would crash into these ships and that could spark 
uh, hostility. So I think I don't think they're playing chicken. I think they've been very sensible uh, in that respect. But, but you know, that's how dangerous it is out there. Neither side is going to blink on this because it's such a massive issue, and it is why the South China Sea and that region is, is the hottest flashpoint, the most dangerous potential flashpoint in the world, and it's this century's great power rivalry will be played out there. Fab. And on that note, let's quickly wrap things up with uh, your takeaway of the last seven days. Tim, uh, your wonderful Leeds United atop of the championship. I'm presuming, though, that you don't want to talk about football. We did the World Cup. We've done all of no, that. I, 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 um, I'd absolutely love to talk about football. I'm very glad you mentioned that. I'm not going to let you get a word in it. <laughs> me onto some geopolitical issue. I was at Millwall on Saturday. We drew one all, but we uh-huh. scored in the 90th minute, which is like a victory. We're top of the league and we're loving it. Uh, Birmingham City, the mighty Birmingham City, are somewhat struggling uh, this year. We haven't won a game, though we are out of the relegation points. We haven't won a game. Lots we, haven't of draws. Birmingham City. we haven't lost a game yet. Anyway, well, what's my takeaway? My takeaway is I've kind of fallen in love with a little program called Ozark. Um, did you ever watch Breaking Bad? Uh, I don't really watch TV, so i not. What, what what do you do? Do you watch movies? Oh, I sit and contemplate my navel. No, I, uh, <laughs> I'm not snobbish about TV. I think it's brilliant, and I've heard some fantastic things about Breaking Bad. Uh, I never mm. saw the West, West, the West Wing. West Wing. But again, yeah. I, you know, I read reviews and it just seems quality. I just haven't got time. I, I read. I do. But wait a minute. You, you do a lot of flying, though. Surely when you're flying, you can get your laptop out, watch a movie. Yeah, yeah, uh, movie. Well, it. actually, I'm not flying anymore, but that's a long story you don't want to know about. I'll watch a movie occasionally. I watch the news on my iPad next to my desk, but I just I don't watch, you know, shows or stuff. I'm big fan of the radio. Me too, me too. But there is something about watching actors in front of you inhabit a space, pretend to be something else, and it's just sucking you in. And what Ozark is, it's it's a bit like a bit like Breaking Bad. And the premise of Breaking Bad is that the protagonist becomes an antagonist, but you go with him through this descent when he has to make this decision to commit a crime to help save his life because he can't afford cancer like treatment and it, and it takes you through what some seven seasons where it becomes a, wow. a drug kingpin it's absolutely well, brilliant I, but, I it's, it, but it's a dark comedy um, cultural traits and I'm aware now that A, a lot of the action is moving from Hollywood onto things like Netflix and uh, I know they're getting the big names and I also know that sometimes um, actually, I, I have to admit, I did watch Westworld and Westworld 2, uh, and that is the only show I've watched in the last two or three years. I thought Westworld was brilliant. I love the original film with the Um And that was how I found out that now, when, when you're planning a series, you plot ahead as much as like seven, eight, nine series. Mm. It's um, quite a commitment. Um, you know, and long format is still there, which is well, the, the conceit always was was that in terms of drama on a screen is that film, cinema was the pinnacle and that TV was the cheap cousin. 
And actually, I think that's almost been uh, turned on its head. That actually, with long-form TV dramas, you can have so much nuance. You can explore characters in a way that you never can with cinema. And that actually, this this is like reading novels on steroids in terms. Yeah, and you can of develop character. I, mean, we, um, I forget what it is, but there's one that's really big here. It's on everyone's uh, uh, bodyguard. Body uh, UK yeah. one again. I've not seen it, but you know, zeitgeist. You're aware of it. And again, by episode five, whatever it is at the moment, you know, certain characters are are developing, and, and the writers are clever enough to put something in episode two that then makes sense in episode five and six. And you know, this really is a it's, it is an art form. Dickens, uh, some of his novels were actually put together from weekly installments. You know, he used to write two or three a couple of pages for a newspaper of, of, a, of a story, and then carry it on the next week. Uh, week after week, and some of them eventually became some of his famous novels. So there is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes said. True that. But what is new under the sun is I'm sure you have a book out, or you've got you've got one pending. So where are we in? in no, the no, book out. Um, thank you for mentioning it. I did Prisoners of Geography, which mm. I'm glad to say after 108 weeks is still in the top ten in the UK, which is just fantastic. But to my surprise. This week, Divided, my new book, Out in Paperback, joined it. So I've now got two books mm-hmm. in the UK Top 10, which I am pretty pleased about, I have to tell you. And that comes out in America. Tim, you do know that it's not seemly for a Brit to brag. I'm not bragging. I am relating factual events and statistics. <laughs> and uh, sorry, and if I can get a plug in, it comes out in America under the title The Age of Walls. It's about walls and fences and why they're going up uh, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, in October by Simon and Tristan. Oh, and in the UK it's by Elliot and Thompson called Divided. It's available at a good bookshop etc. Goodbye, Ro. <laughs> cool. Alright, and just before we say goodbye to you um, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the social, sir? These days pretty much only uh, I Twittius, as in I Claudius, but I Twittius on Twitter. And I do have a website, thewhatandthewhy.com uh, I've not been giving it the TLC recently, but um, there's bits and bobs on there from time to time. Fantastic. And of course, folks, you can catch up with me on Twitter. I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. The show on Twitter is Mid-Atlantic Show, but I'm so terrible at tweeting. Uh at Mid-Atlantic Show, there's little point in actually following me on that. But go, go on there if you just if you do want to follow us. We'll see you for another rip-roaring edition of Mid-Atlantic. See you all again soon. Bye-bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.